Well, good evening. My name is Stephen Tuck. I'm the director of TORCH. You can see up there the full uh, words for the acronym. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the first in a series of this week's talks on drama. As you may know, uh, these are the Humanitas series of visiting professorships. And that series is um, a series of professorships at Oxford and Cambridge, which brings leading practitioners and scholars and artists to both universities to discuss major themes in the arts, humanities and social sciences. The visiting professorships were created by Lord Weidenfeld and the programme is managed and funded by the Weidenfeld Hoffman Trust and with the support of um, a wide range of very generous benefactors. And this visiting professorship in drama has been made possible by the generous support of André Hoffman. This week of events has been organised by Sos Eltis, um, who is the academic director for the visiting professorship in drama, and uh, with the support of the wonderful Torch team, who will have guided you in, and Sos will be closing things at the end this evening. Our Humanitas visiting professor in drama this week is David Edgar. David Edgar founded Britain's first postgraduate playwright course in the great city of Birmingham, my hometown, and became the country's first professor of playwriting studies. He's enjoyed a long association with the Royal Shakespeare Company and, much more importantly, the Birmingham Repertory Theatre, and he's had his works performed all over the globe. He's written for television and radio and writes regularly for the London Review of Books and The Guardian, and you may have seen the recent piece addressing this week's theme. His book about playwriting, How Plays Work, was published in 2009. So we are honoured that David Edgar is joining us for a full week of talks. Our thanks to you. And uh, also for bringing together such a, a wealth of other playwrights, critics and theatre makers to, to come and discuss these issues. The theme for the week is, is the playwright dead? And if not, should she or he be? Future sessions will have conversations or teams of people, but tonight, and only tonight, we have David Edgar alone on stage, um, who will be setting out the challenge to the playwright in modern British theatre. So without any more ado, David, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you. as ever in contemporary uh, lecture halls, rather dwarfed by the screen, but I'm afraid it's not changing. That's, that's kind of it. Um, when I was three and three quarters, my parents first took me to the theatre. The play was Beauty and the Beast, and at the first entry of the masked and fearsome creature, I screamed the place down. Eventually, my behaviour became so intolerable that I had to be removed from the auditorium, and as conveniently my aunt was administrator of the theatre, I was able to be taken backstage to meet the now maskless beast in his dressing room, to shake his hand, 
to see him put his mask back on again, to shake his hand a second time, and thus reassured to be escorted back into the auditorium. <laughs> After all this effort, as you can imagine, on his next entrance, I screamed the place down. <laughs> I've had good experiences at the theatre since, but none quite like that. A year later, I went to the same playhouse, the Birmingham Rep, to see the same author's version of the Tinderbox legend, a play involving sinister witches and huge dogs. But by now, I was wise. I realised it was illusion. And I realised also that there was nothing in the world I wanted to do more than help make such illusions. From the day the magic died, or more accurately, the day I realised that's what it was, I wanted to be up there with the magicians. Between the ages of 13 and 19, however, I found my ambitions somewhat narrowed. Following a disastrous school performance as Miss Prism in The Importance of Being Earnest, <laughs> personally, I've always blamed the shoes, my mother concluded, well, it's not going to be acting, is it, dear? In subsequent years, I realised or was informed it was unlikely to be designing, directing, nor stage management either. <laughs> I came to writing by process of elimination. There's a third defining date in my history. I was 20, and thus in my second year at university. In 1968, that dawn in which it was bliss to be alive, but to be young and in full-time higher education was very heaven. My experience of the worldwide student revolt of the late 60s gave me a mission for my wor work and indeed my life, which has continued through various processes of, of revision up to the present day. And when I left university, even more when I left a short career in journalism three years later, I decided that that mission was best pursued not just by writing, but by writing for the theatre. I want to talk about why that was, and in my view, remains a good decision. Why people who say that British playwriting is in decline are wrong. Why, over the last 60 years, the great questions of British society have been more consistently, rigorously, and durably confronted in, in theatre than anywhere else. Of course, there have been peaks and troughs. Moments when film or television drama or the novel appeared to speak more prominently for the times. There have been short periods when new, new theatre writing and its social and political mission seemed to be stalled when the energy moved into production to the classics. There is, as I shall argue later, a profound irony that in a period when more and more drama departments and universities offer playwriting courses, the dominant academic ethos of many such departments has been hostile to the individually authored dramatic text. But for all this, I still believe that since the premiere of John Osborne's groundbreaking Look Back in Anger at the Royal Court Theatre in 1956, in wave upon wave, new theatre writing in Britain has been a huge success story, proving, in Balzac's phrase, the most effective secretary of the times. So, from 1956 to the mid-60s, the first generation of royal court dramatists, Osborne himself, Arnold Wesker, the early plays of Edward Bond, defined both a new kind of play, the kitchen sink drama, and a new kind of writer, the angry young man. In the 70s, the generation which had come to adulthood in the late 60s charted the disillusionment 
and even collapse of post-war British society in plays reputedly about the state of England, but also about its post-war history. In the 80s, it suddenly ceased to be compulsory for political playwrights to be called things like Howard, David or John. <laughs> Joining Char Carol Churchill and Pam Gems, a whole generation of women playwrights challenged the place of women in society, history and the family, while playwrights from Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the regions of England challenged the hegemony of the metropolis. In the 90s, the upsurge of in-your-face theatre gave voice to a generation which had grown up under the triple threat of AIDS, drugs and Margaret Thatcher. The mid-90s explosion of plays by Mark Ravenhill, Anthony Nielsen, Sarah Kane and a dozen other new British playwrights, not just on home ground, but across the continent, where their work became known as new European drama, no less, confirmed the continued vibrancy of British playwriting. Between 1995 and 1999, there were more than 400 overseas productions of shows premiered at the Royal Court. Like any regular theatre traveller, I now know the words for shopping, fucking, blasted, and indeed psychosis in most of the languages of the expanded EU. <laughs> Following 9-11, the theatre turned to documentary, testamentary, and verbatim theatre to try and make sense of the war on terror. Most recently, a new generation of young playwrights, many of them women, and including an increasing number of black and Asian writers, have returned to fabulation with plays that range in setting from Kabul to California and from Brussels to Basra, and in subject from the NHS, educational and personal debt, via celebrity culture, climate change in the army, to immigration, Islam and the BMP. As Alex Sears puts it, puts it in rewriting the nation, late 20th century British new writing was essentially Newtonian, proceeding in linear fashion on the principles of cause and effect. In the 2000s, it went quantum. I enter the story in act two of what turned out to be a six act story. The early 70s was an extraordinary time to start out in British theater. In the wake of Osborne, Wesker and Bond at George Devine's Royal Court, as well as Sheila Delaney and Brendan Behan at Joan Littlewood's Theatre Royal Stratford East. The abolition of theatre censorship in 1968 had not only expanded the language and subject matter available to playwrights, but also allowed improvised work onto the stage for the first time. There was a sudden influx of hitherto banned theatre influences from abroad. I saw the Living Theatre at the Roundhouse in 1969 as well as the creation of the network of small theatres above or below pubs and clubs, collectively dubbed the underground, the alternative, or the phrase that stuck, the fringe. It was rumoured that in the early 70s, it was possible to write a two to three hander lasting under an hour, so terrible that nobody would put it on, but it was pretty hard and I never managed it. <laughs> in addition, playwrights set up companies to tour their works in the backs of unreliable Ford transits, they also collaborated with each other. My first job as a professional playwright was working with a group of writers, including Howard Brenton, David Hare and Snoo Wilson, on the collective creation of a play about the Ulster crisis called England's Island. Playwrights also felt themselves part of a movement which also included an alternative non-literary avant-garde theatre form then called performance art. 
I was lucky enough to spend the first years of the 70s in Bradford, which for reasons best known to itself had won the Northern franchise for the late 60s hippie counterculture, and in its two hugely successful Bradford festivals, brought together performance groups like the John Bull Puncture Repair Kit and the Welfare State, with touring groups like David Hare and Howard Brenton's Portable Theatre, and revolutionary agitprop groups like Bradford's own General Will. On one side of the Great Horton Road, Albert Hunt's Art College Theatre Group was collectively creating plays like John Ford's Cuban Missile Crisis, telling the story of the 1962 brush with nuclear catastrophe as a Western, and the destruction of Dresden, during which student actors tore up cardboard boxes in silence for exactly 22 minutes, the length of the 1945 bombing raid. On the other side of the road, Bradford University's fellow in theatre Chris Parr was commissioning Howard Brenton to write a play about Wesley, set in the city's Methodist chapel and employing the combined Methodist and school choirs of the district, and another about Scott of the Antarctic in the city's ice rink, with myself assaying the small but significant role of the Almighty. <laughs> Audience participation experiments included a play of mine whose ending was decided nightly on the basis of audience interviews processed by a computer, then a device occupying an entire room. During one early General Will show, audiences voted on the outcomes of scenes, and in another, the entire audience was arrested for contravention of the Industrial Relations Act 1971. As the 70s progressed, however, the sense of unity between political theatre and performance art, between the verbal and the visual, the university and the art college, the theatre of thought and the theatre of imagination began to splinter, as first of all the performance artists split off from political theatre makers to form their own performance circuits with their own devotees. Then there was a division within playwrights themselves, as some remained committed to seeking a working class audience outside theatre buildings, while others sought to make an assault on the mainstream theatre. Moving away from the streets, and onto the stages of the great institutions in London, the Royal Court, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and the National Theatre. Nonetheless, the spirit of formal and methodological experiment and challenge, which playwrights had learnt from performance companies, was retained. In the early 70s, Max Stafford Clarke pioneered promenade plays for single audience members at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Later in the decade, shows by his touring company Joint Stock included Heathcote Williams's play about Speaker's Corner, in which the audience chose the order of events and heckled the performers, and yesterday's news of a Baitim play based on interviews with British mercenaries fighting in Angola. At the same time, playwrights were fighting their corner. Being the only theatre professionals who can do their job perfectly adequately from six feet underground, playwrights were aware that they were in permanent competition with revival of plays by the dead. Both Peter Hall at the National Theatre and Trevor Nunn at the Royal Shakespeare Company should take credit for opening up their stages, sometimes even their large ones, to plays dedicated to the overthrow of bourgeois institutions. At the Royal Court, under pressure from women playwrights, the proportion of women's plays in the rep rose from 6% in the 70s to 38% in the 80s. But overall, the proportion of play new plays remained, uh, remained in the repertoire stubbornly low, 
at about 12%, and most new plays were restricted to initially liberating, but now confining, small studio spaces. Unusually, one might say, playwrights responded to this not by whinging, but by creating organisations. In 1973, the Scottish Society of Playwrights was founded on the model of the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Centre to present playwrights' work in development. Founded in 1975, the Theatre Writers' Union negotiated Britain's first union agreements for playwrights, but also fought for increased Arts Council spending on playwriting, an increase in new plays in the repertoire, and the opening up of large spaces to them. In 1982, the Manchester branch of the Theatre Writers' Union founded Northwest Playwrights, one of a number of self-help groups set up by playwrights to develop and showcase their work. In 1994, 66 playwrights, including Harold Pinter, Carol Churchill, Sue Townsend and Willie Russell, wrote to The Guardian demanding that all British theatres undertake to produce at least three new plays a year, which they didn't. In 1995, the Theatre Writers' Union and the Writers' Guild, which were to amalgamate later in the decade, produced a proposal for a levy on the production of out-of-copyright plays, the proceeds going to finance new work. In 2005, a group of young playwrights, including Richard Bean, David Eldridge uh, and Moira Buffini, founded the Monsterists to campaign for production of their plays on large stages. As those playwrights and others did indeed see their work on the National Theatre's largest stage, the Monsterists were a success story. As Lincoln's Dr. Jacqueline Bolton demonstrates in an excellent narrative of these campaigns, it was grassroots agitation by playwrights which led the Arts Council to devote more attention and funding to new playwriting, with measurable results. As far back as 1984, new plays in the Olivier were outperforming revivals, Howard Brenton and David Hare's Pravda attracted 98% capacity. By 1993, new work provided over half the National Theatre's box office income. As stated, from 1970 to 1985, new work formed roughly 12% of the repertoire of the main houses of the regional and London repertory theatres, and from 1985 to 1990, it dropped to 7%. But by 1997, new writing as a proportion of the repertoire rose to over 15%, and by the turn of the century, reached around 20% of all productions. However, playwrights were increasingly concerned by something else. A mid-80s survey of the vibrant, independent, small-scale theatre scene in Birmingham found that eight out of nine of the new plays presented were either devised by the company or written by a company member. In Manchester, an early 90s survey found that only a third of the companies which presented new plays had ever employed a playwright. For playwrights battling, as they saw it, against the domination of British stages by revivals, it was troubling that the theatre sector, in which most of them had learnt their craft, was turning its back on a new generation of playwrights. Having won proper remuneration for writing plays, and the rights to be consulted over casting and to be present in the rehearsal room, it was alarming to find playwrights excluded from the process altogether. Then, at the beginning of the noughts, the Arts Council produced a policy document, The Next Stage, backed up by an unusually authoritative report by Peter Boyden into the roles and functions of the English regional producing theatres. For Boyden, English theatre remained dangerously wedded to a post-war age and a core theatrical canon 
which the public no longer knew, citing an inexorably widening spectacle gap between subsidised theatre and sophisticated mixed-media event-based culture, by contrast with which text-based drama, he wrote, is in relative decline. Behind both reports lay a presumption that text-based work was nostalgic and dull, while non-text-based work was up to the minute trendy and popular. It seemed that a new fault line had been drawn in British theatre between a dusty, out-of-date text-based drama, everything from Aeschylus to Eightbourne, from Electra to Educating Rita, on the one side, and on the other, a vibrant, popular, innovative theatre based on devised scripts, site-specific productions, and physically-based performance techniques. In this, Boyden and the Arts Council was following a movement that had been growing for at least 15 years and was to take off in the noughts. In 2005, Guardian critic Lynn Gardner's blog celebrating the Edinburgh Fringe pro programme was headlined, Playwrights, They're So Last Year. By 2007, and despite increases in financial support for new plays, the English Arts Council reconsidered its former emphasis on new writing, dropping it from its production priorities in favour of giving particular emphasis to experimental practice and interdisciplinary practice, circus and street arts. Why would you want to give em emphasis to a theatre form that was yesterday's news? Except that it wasn't. Something quite extraordinary had happened to the repertoire of British theatre in the noughts, which nobody knew about because for that ten years the Arts Council had stopped collating the information it receives from theatres about what shows they do and who comes to see them. I was involved in a piece of Arts Council commissioned research, writ large, published in 2009, which asked those questions of the 89 regularly funded theatres and companies in England, 65 of whom replied. Since 2003, the proportion of new work in the repertoire had risen to over 40%. But the most striking finding was the increase in new play audiences in larger theatres. On average, between 2003 and 2008, 9 out of 10 attendances at new plays in the responding theatres were in auditoria with more than 200 seats. Following writ large, the group that produced it approached the management body UK Theatre Society of London Theatres to see if it could conduct a much wider study of their companies in both the small scale, uh, in both the subsidised and commercial sectors, also capturing the increasing amount of small scale work uh, by independent companies which is toured to buildings. The study of what 273 companies presented in 2013 is being published next month and its findings are remarkable. For the first time for at least 100 years, more new work is being performed on British stages than revivals. Overall, excluding amateur work and shows with single performances, 59% of all productions were new in 2013. That this is not a matter of new work getting short runs in small spaces is shown by the figures for performances, 62% new, and attendances, 63% new. Taking out musicals, pantomimes, opera, performance installations and physical theatre and dance, 69% of what used to be called straight theatre consisted of productions of new work. New work achieved the same percentage of capacity at the box office as all straight shows in theatres over 500 seats. 
In London, 67% of productions in the subsidised sector were of new work and 54% in the commercial sector. Of the new work, a significant portion was devised. 10% of all productions were devised and 14% of straight theatre, though with smaller figures for numbers of performances and attendances. Authored new plays still represented 55% of productions, 56% of performances and 52% of attendances. A substantial proportion, but not a majority, of new writing productions were of new adaptations, new translations and plays for children. So, to put it mildly, the death of the British playwright has been greatly exaggerated. 2013 was a golden year for new plays, including, as it did, Lucy Kirkwood's Chimerica, Lucy Preble's The Effect, Rachel de la Haye's Roots, and the transfer of James Graham's This House to the Olivier Theatre at the National. In her Guardian blog two weeks ago, Lynn Gardner justly celebrated playwriting in all its rich variety. In his introduction to Dan Rebellato's Modern British Playwriting 2000-2009, itself a happy title for playwrights, Andrew Hayden saw a plural and diverse future for the theatre in which old divisions between new work and new writing had turned into fertile breeding grounds for collaboration. The answer to the question posed by this week of events is clearly a resounding no. So resounding indeed that I'm surprised you've all bothered to show up. <laughs> However, it isn't quite like that. There are two clouds on the horizon, one relatively new, one that might not be a cloud, but has been, ar been around for a long time. The most immediate is the worrying prospects for theatre repertoire as a result of the swinging cuts in subsidy to British theatre, particularly outside London. In 2012, playwright Finn Kennedy was challenged by Arts Minister Ed Vasey to prove that government cuts were threatening to new work. In February 2013, Finn Kennedy produced the results of a survey in battalions which showed that a fifth of responding companies had reduced playwrights' residences and attachments, two-fifths had cut back on reading unsolicited scripts, and over half were issuing fewer uh, commissions to writers. In January 2014, Kennedy launched a follow-up report at the House of Commons at which Elizabeth, New uh, Elizabeth Newman of the Bolton Octagon revealed that having done four new plays in 2013, this year they would only be producing one. Similarly, Giles Croft of the Nottingham Playhouse explained that having produced 18 ma main stage new plays over 10 years, he now had no commissioning budget at all. The plays presented in 2013 were commissioned in 2011 or 2012 before the Arts Council and local authority cuts fully kicked in. It's perfectly possible that 2013 may prove a peak in new work production and that from now on it's all back downhill. The second thing is this. One of the reasons why playwrights get jumpy about work which is created without writers as opposed to work that is created with writers but not necessarily in the traditional way, is not just about protecting the presence of their craft within the industry, although it would be interesting to see the response of directors or designers to the idea that their jobs could be done collectively. It's that for at least a generation, making shows without writers has been promoted by scholars in universities who think that playwriting is an inherently hierarchical practice which inevitably promotes a false 
and reactionary view of the world. The root of this long-term development was the proper ambition of drama departments which were founded in the 60s and 70s to distinguish themselves from English departments by paying attention to drama in performance rather than plays on the stage. In the 60s, it was still perfectly feasible to find uh, lecturers in English departments who would describe King Lear as Shakespeare's greatest poem. I studied in such a new drama department in the late 60s at Manchester, whose guiding spirit was the great prophet of theatre in the round, Stephen Joseph. Yes, we studied Shakespeare, his contemporaries, the Greeks, the Baroque, 19th century realists and 20th century drama. But we also studied medieval performance, Stanislavski, the Meiningen Ensemble, Reinhardt, and for into each life some rain must fall, Gordon Craig. Later, a substantial cohort halt from my year at Manchester took over Exeter's drama department, which has concentrated on performance work ever since. I ended up at Birmingham, teaching Britain's first postgraduate playwriting course in a department whose raison d'etre was the presentation rather than just the study of plays. What was happening in drama, theatre studies and increasingly performance studies departments was something different. Not so much a buttressing of the study of the texts we have inherited with study of how they were performed, but a downgrading and even exclusion of those texts from consideration. Not so much the author's dethronement as her expulsion. The first major theoretical influence on the new departments, explaining the term performance studies, was the American theatre maker Richard Schechner, who pioneered a view of theatre informed by the perception that our lives are basically constructed by performance in the theatre and way beyond it, but whose resistance to traditional literary-based theatre studies had, according to Manchester University's professor Steve Bottoms, led to a near-pathological aversion to the textual. The second connected influence was post-structuralism. The influence of Jack Derrida on theatre studies is dated by some from the moment in 1991 when scholars worked out that Rose English's performance piece, The Double Wedding, was based on Derrida's The, D the Double Session. In what was probably the first book to apply deconstruction to plays, Adrian Page's 1992 The Death of the Playwright, question mark, challenged the moribund concept of a single meaning authorised by the playwright, questioning the extent to which the playwright can be resurrected as a wielder of meaning without suppressing the creative responses to his or her written text. However, Page's project was clearly not to eliminate the playwright. His critique of the author God did not imply that the playwright foregoes all possibility of acting as the guiding influence on the text, as if playwrights cannot exercise some degree of control over the eventual reception of their text, then their work can be appropriated and forced to serve ideological interests to which they are opposed, which rather dates it. And crucially, neither Page nor his 11 contributors, whose chapters all dealt with the work of playwrights, suggested that playwrights shouldn't exist at all. Thank goodness for the question mark. Since 1992, however, the question mark has disappeared. As Birmingham's Dr Liz Tomlin argues, a post-structuralist critique of dramatic theatre, which seeks to impose that critique on theatrical practices, has become established in the theatre departments of most academic institutions. 
This critique is not just of a theatrical realism which, as Michael van den Hervel puts it a little satirically, simply replicates existing and therefore arguably bourgeois, patriarchal, racist, oppressive and Oedipal discourses, but also attempts by Brecht and others to strip away the illusions and falsities of realism and reveal the hidden realities of the class struggle underneath. For post-structuralism, of course, there is no hidden reality to reveal. Baudrillard's simulacrum conceals not the truth, but the fact there isn't any, making the revelation of any kind of truth difficult to conceive. As Liz Tomlin argues, what is now revealed by the exposure of theatrical construction is not the truth of the capitalist system or anything else, but the absence of truth and the conclusion that all reality is subjectively constructed thereby calling any kind of theatrical representation, Ibsenite or Brechtian, into question. As most plays are representational, and much of the playwright's conventional armory, characterization, dialogue, figuring, narrative, structure, is traditionally associated with being representational, a binary is set up, which as Liz Tomlin puts it, bolsters the ideological alignment of text-based work as reactionary and non-text-based work as radical. Hence the growing isolation, as she writes, of the dramatic text within contemporary theatre and performance departments in British universities and the hegemony of a new master narrative with an imperative to totalising all opposition. Further, she also notes that this binary division between text-based and non-text-based models of performance, which emerged in the academy, was subsequently replicated within the British theatre industry in its processes for developing new work. The assault on the divine authority and omniscience of the dramatic playwright on behalf of the fragmented and arbitrary nature of the post-structuralist world didn't start in the theatre. It started in the academy. Beside it lies three uh, presumptions, all of which privilege devising, it seems to me, overwriting, which have informed the syllabuses of many theatre and performance studies departments and thus shaped the aspirant directors, actors, funders, critics, and indeed playwrights who pass through them. One, not universally held, but there, is that individual playwriting inevitably leads to a certain sort of drama, naturalistic, linear, fourth wall, and as a consequence that the individual playwright is constitutionally incapable of pursuing the post-structuralist project of challenging narrative coherent characterization and fully created fictional worlds, even if she wanted to. The second gives a political and even moral authority to devising processes as more democratic and less hierarchical than the individual playwriting model. As the Royal Court's literary manager Chris Campbell put it in a podcasted conversation with theatre maker Chris Goode, playwrights feel profoundly irritated by the fact that devising has claimed a moral high ground over playwriting. In response, Chris Goode said that he didn't understand the writer-led or writer-focused process as an ethical proposition in the way that he understood other ways of theatre-making as ethical propositions. The third presumption specifically associates playwriting with political reaction. In Liz Tomlin's words, denying the potential of radicalism to artists who continue to rely on pre predominantly dramatic representational, representational practices, even if such practices 
are intended to communicate political opposition, partly by appropriating left-wing language to describe them. Hence, according to Michael van der Hervel, American critics talk of the coercive system of Aristotelian poetics and directors of the imperialism of the fascist text. In an abstract of a paper at a 2013 theatre conference, a French academic described new writing as the expression of the dominant ideology's cultural certainties. In a pugnacious contemporary theatre review piece in 2006, Professor Dan Rebellato quotes one anti-text critic who describes individually written plays as commodity theatre, another as factory, protest, uh, factory processed, capitalist and conquering, neither of which I think are intended to be compliments. <laughs> Similarly, a chapter of Professor Jen Harvey's 2005 book, Staging the UK, begins with the claim that by resisting European influence, a snobbish and xenophobic British culture, promoting conservative and sometimes reactionary understandings of community identity, has been maintained in theatre through a narrative which constructs British drama and theatre as uniquely and consistently literary. While Eric Earn, head of playwriting at Brown University in Rhode Island, combining the formal and the political post-structuralist critique, believes that linear dramaturgy is the implementation of a genocidal authority on the grounds that stories end. So there we, <laughs> so there we have it. The playwrights work as imperialist, fascist, reactionary, xenophobic, capitalist, unethical, and genocidal. Is it a wonder we're upset? <laughs> and thereby, a proper questioning of the idea that there is only one way to make plays has transmuted itself into the implication that the individual playwright cannot, by his or her very nature, initiate work which addresses uh, the contemporary world. Not surprisingly, even theatre practitioners opening to open to innovative theatre practice are concerned. In Impact Theatre, uh, Pete Brooks's words, with a new orthodoxy abroad in the universities. In an interview with Jacqueline Bolton, collaborative playwright David Gregg reports that academic theatre studies and the world which, in which I live as a professional producer of theatre are strangely wide apart. The effect on this is what, uh, on what is studied and taught was addressed in 2009 by Professor Steve Bottoms, whose research specialities include the performance company Goat Island, in an editorial in performing research, introducing an addition given over to papers delivered at a 2007 conference at Leeds. Quoting performance research editor Richard Guff's organisation that many performance scholars now insist that they are anti-textual, Bottoms noted how few of the papers submitted to the conference dealt with play-based dramatic theatre. Evidence of a situation, he said, whereby a largely reflexive disinterest in dramatic literature and theatre history has become the new orthodoxy. In the same article, he noted, as a member of the peer uh, group panel of the research assessment exercise, the vast swathes of research concerned with performance and non-text-based theatre but comparatively speaking, very little work concerned with literary drama or playwriting. As a result, he continued, the academic field seems to be becoming further and further detached from the mainstream theatre industry. The margin has moved to the academic centre. Hence, syllabuses, 
dominated by the work of excellent performance companies like the Worcester Group and Forced Entertainment. As Jacqueline Bolton points out, where texts are studied, the tendency for them to be those which lend themselves to analyses responsive to critical theory. In one major northern university, the professor of performance informs students at the beginning of their course that she thinks theatre is boring and that she hates plays. The range of study has not been expanded, but contracted. A necessary corrective seems to have become a prevailing norm. There is, of course, an irony. This period also saw a huge uh, expansion in playwriting studies. However, playwriting too can find itself taught through the prism of hostility to representation. In a recent edition of Contemporary Theatre Re Review about playwriting studies, Exeter's Dr. Cathy Turner revealed that she discourages young playwrights from habits of linear dramatised narrative. In the same edition, and despite her suspicion of the antitextual turn, Birmingham's Liz Tomlin argued that an overemphasis on the analysis of pre-existing written texts and principles drawn from such texts is dangerous. While Goldsmith's John Ginman criticised a focus on inventing psychological convincing characters and is suspicious of any focus on the development of playwright's personal vision or voice. It's hard to think how knowing how to use the skills of narrative and characterization would be damaging, or of a show, however linear, uh, alinear and fragmented, which doesn't either employ or rely on understanding them. And it's hard to justify denying playwriting students some at least of the equipment of their craft on the grounds of creating a vital diversity within the theatre ecology. And that this prejudice against the dr traditional dramatic toolkit has spread into the profession is shown by a much-cited 2012 article by West Yorkshire Playhouse's literary manager Alex Chisholm warning about the damaging effects of teaching narrative characterisation and structure to new playwrights on the grounds that such skills are predicated on creating a very particular kind of play. This theme is echoed by Jacqueline Bolton in her article on new play development in the 1990s, in which she argues that development programmes run by literary departments in the 90s tended to focus upon those elements of dramatic writing that may be most easily, easily codified and taught, character, dialogue and plot, which in combination with the old canard, write what you know, led writers to gravitate towards material drawn from personal and domestic spheres, centred upon interpersonal relationships and typically situated in environments that reflect their own. She also makes the excellent point that a theatre development structure built round rehearsed readings is liable to privilege the verbal over the visual. Nonetheless, it's hard to think of any show that doesn't involve at least one of the triad of dialogue, character and plot, though not necessarily naturalistic dialogue, fully rounded characters or linear plotting, and thus requires that their authors have some understanding of how they function. The term vision, with its implication of theological authority over every aspect of the process, is used by John Ginman as a synonym with voice, which is about a particular repertoire of interests, knowledge, skills and capacities, which inform the particular craft of writing a script. In fact, the notion that the single authored play sees the collective process of theatrical production 
harnessed to the service of an individual voice, with its implication uh, that the playwright is the only artist in the room, and everyone was there merely to serve his interests, was really only current for a very short period of time at one theatre, the Royal Court of the late 50s and early 60s, but not Stratford East at the same time. Even then, there's the famous story of John Dexter telling Arnold Wesker, if you don't shut up, Arnold, I'll direct the play the way you wrote it. <laughs> I think, too, there's a con confusion between chronology and hierarchy. Just because the first runner runs alone, it doesn't stop it being a relay. Playwrights read the papers. They know they aren't in full charge of their intention anymore. That doesn't and shouldn't stop them standing up for how they see their work. Good on Simon Stevens for writing the set for Motortown and insisting, some might say perversely, that it's really a love story. The turn has also informed what is or isn't seen as a play. As Liz Tomlin notes, maintaining the textual, non-textual binary requires an ever-widening of boundaries of the non-literary and an ever-narrowing of the borders of the representational. As stated, new playwriting has been compressed into the niche category of new writing, merely the business of new writing theatres with their dismissive quote marks, rather than how most Western theatre has been and is made. Alex Sears proposes a category of new writing pure, as opposed to new writing light, which excludes history plays, and indeed the history boys, on the grounds of not being contemporary, thus knocking out the extraordinary renaissance of Howard Brenton in his plays about St. Paul, Harold Macmillan, World War I, and the partition of India. At the same time, the non-text-based canon is expanded to embrace work that is written, and forms like verbatim drama and adaptation are claimed for non-text-based non drama. Even Liz Tomlin, who is careful to note that the National Theatre's Iraq war play Stuff Happens was written by David Hare and Out of Joints Talking to Terrorists by Robin Soans, doesn't record that the Tricycle Theatre's series of dramatisations of noted trials and tribunals was written by The Guardian's written Norton Richard Norton Taylor and that the interview play Guantanamo Honour Bound to Defend Freedom by Victoria Britton and Gillian Slovo. Two weeks ago, the Oxford student published a piece titled Verbatim Theatre Plays Without Playwrights. In the same way, clearly authored adaptations are conveniently redefined as devised pieces. In a scholarly article in a peer-reviewed journal, Alex Mermakides lists the National Theatre's productions of his Dark Materials, War Horse, Coram Boy and Nation as devised productions. In fact, his Dark Materials was adapted by Nicholas Wright, Coram Boy by Helen Edmondson, War Horse by Nick Stafford, and Nation by Mark Ravenhill. The most limiting presumptions are those which confine the individual playwright either to the lonely garret or to the perceived prison of linear narrative, fully rounded characters, and the fourth wall baggage of theatrical naturalism. The most consistent promoter of British new playwriting over the last 50 years is Max Stafford Clarke, who through his company's joint stock and out of joint and during his tenure at the Royal Court, developed a method of playmaking which involves actors in the research and development process 
while preserving the individual authorial voice, a method which produced plays by Carol Churchill, Howard Brenton, Mark Ravenhill and me. That playwrights are alive to different ways of doing things is demonstrated by the way in which the divide between performance and text-based theatre is being breached by playwrights like Bryony Lavery, Abby Morgan, Dan Rebellato and David Gregg, who have worked and are working with performance companies like Sound and Fury, Frantic Assembly, Lightwork and Suspect Culture. Last year, in his Don Mar show about surveillance, privacy, James Graham created a show that was part history, part seminar and part demonstration. This year at the Royal Court, Duncan Macmillan collaborated with scientist Chris Rapley and director Katie Mitchell to create a show about climate change that was entirely a lecture. And surely the idea that the individual writer is inevitably trapped within linear narrative and picture frame settings is belied by the work of Carol Churchill, Simon Stevens, Sarah Kane and Martin Crimp, the author of Attempts on Her Life, in which there is little linear narrative, scenes are disconnected, lines unattributed and there's nothing remotely akin to a fourth wall. At the very least, the prevailing discourse in many universities has contributed to a climate of opinion in which by, mid, by the mid-noughts, the two leading progressive theatre venues in London, Battersea Arts Centre and Camden's People's Theatre, could proudly declare themselves script-free zones. But the fact that authored new plays are clearly not going away and that playwrights are finding inventive way of ways of reinventing their craft, often in collaboration with performance companies, creates an opportunity to concentrate on what playwrights can do rather than on what, allegedly, they can't. There have been recent academic conferences on the work of Martin Crimp, David Gregg and Simon Stevens. The revival of all of Sarah Kane's work at Sheffield, a season that starts this week, is an opportunity to reassess her remarkable body of work, which demonstrates her extraordinary skills of characterisation and structuring at the same time as challenging them. And at an academic conference in Winchester, someone was heard to whisper, are we too afraid of representation? However, behind all of this are presumptions of my own. Notably that the individual playwright, whether in her garret or, or, or the rehearsal room or flitting between the two, clearly and demonstrably brings something unique to the process of theatre making. That the playwright is writing a play which is then developed into a production in collaboration with other professionals, with other skills, has been the way of things for most of the last two and a half thousand years because it produces the best work. But is this the case? And if it is, all the time or sometimes, what is it about the playwriting process which makes it so and could those processes work just as well collectively? The idea of this week of events at Oxford is to address that question. As a kind of prologue, last November I asked a group of playwrights of various ages to come to the Royal Court for an evening to discuss the processes by which they write their work. The sheer variety was fascinating. April de Angelis doesn't always plan, but by writing comes to the moment when she realises there's three more scenes here. Roy Williams starts out with what he wants to say and thus has the ending from the start, structuring the play before he has the dialogue, but the process contains many false starts and some splurging. 
Nicholas Wright might synopsize up to the interval, but not beyond it, and is not above moving bits of cardboard round the table. David Eldridge plans in the sense of sensing a shape to the play, often influenced by the shape of existing plays from the past. And James Graham, the youngest of the writers, really does plan on the basis of a commitment to the ironies, twists and crossroads which make up a dramatic story. Although fascinated by form, the starting point for all of the writers was content, whether that was the subject, an attitude to the subject, a resonance with the writer's biography, or an, or an attraction to the place and feel of where the play is set. While all the writers valued discussions and workshops of their work and expected the play to change both before and during rehearsal, it was hard to see how such individual and particular processes could function in quite the same way collectively. But that doesn't mean, of course, they couldn't function in different ways. On Wednesday, I'm going to be asking the questions I asked at the Royal Court of two writers who've worked in different ways. April De Angelis again, and David Gregg, who in addition to his individual work, founded the performance group Suspect Culture. On Friday, I'm talking to two writers who've worked individually, but also collaboratively. Howard Brenton, who has co-written plays with David Hare and others, including slightly shamefully me, uh, and also worked with Matt Stafford-Clark's collectively researched joint stock uh, company, and has spent time in the very different world of television drama, writing 13 episodes of Spooks. Like Brenton, Bryony Lavery also started out in small-scale political theatre in the 70s, and in addition to adapting Treasure Island for the National this year, has recently worked with performance companies Frantic Assembly and Sound and Fury. On Saturday, I'm bringing together critic Michael Billington, theatre maker Chris Goode, and scholar Liz Tomlin, with playwright Rachel De La Haye to discuss how new theories and practices of playwriting have changed both how playwrights are viewed and how they view themselves and the world. I'm hugely grateful to Torch and the Humanitas programme, but most particularly to Dr. Soseltis and Sarah Bebb for enabling me to bring this extraordinary group of people together. After this evening, the plan is for me to ask questions rather than answer them, though who knows quite how that will work out. But I want to finish now by saying something as a political playwright in defence of the theatrical canon which I spent so much of my youth trying to edge off British stages and which has proved so durable for a reason. Professor Jen Harvey's argument about the contribution of literary theatre to the essentially isolationist, reactionary and xenophobic character of British culture has a particular difficulty, which she acknowledges. It is that from the late 17th to the late 19th century, the London theatre was overwhelmingly dominated, not by British writers, but those born in Ireland. In terms of canonical playwrights from that period, there are only three exceptions. William Congreve, who although born near Leeds, was brought up and educated in Dublin, John Gay, who wrote the book of the musical comedy The Beggar's Opera, and Arthur Wing Pinero. Jen Harvey confronts this problem by insisting that these works are acceptable to the British theatre tradition due to being unthreatening because subordinate and colonial. Well, it's possible to argue that had William of Orange lost the Battle of the Boyne, Ireland become independent before 1700, and Congreve, Farquhar, Sheridan, Goldsmith, O'Keefe, 
Buchico, Wilde and Shaw remained in Ireland and set their plays there, they would have produced works greater than the plays they chose to write and set in England. But I wouldn't bank on it. They would be competing, after all, with the way of the world, the recruiting officer, the school for scandal, she stoops to conquer, wild oats, London assurance, the importance of being earnest, and Pygmalion. And can you really dismiss these plays as reactionary and these playwrights as assimilated and subordinate? Shaw was a socialist polemicist, as in his way was wild. Sheridan attacked the long 18th century Tory hegemony from the opposition benches throughout his long parliamentary career. It is not to downplay the achievements of the later Irish playwrights who stayed in and wrote about Ireland, Yeats, Gregory, Sin, Joe Casey, to suggest that far from being assimilated, the great virtue of the expatriates was, was that they saw and wrote about England as outsiders. All of them attacked the hypocrisies of the English class system in a way that might not have been open to English-born playwrights. Look, for instance, at Pinero. Such an oppositional stance by London's playwrights works on either side of the Irish centuries. Ben Johnson was a jailbird. Thomas Kidd was imprisoned and tortured for heresy. Christopher Marlowe was an atheist and possibly a double agent, murdered in a Deptford tavern. Had Shakespeare been a reactionary xenophobe, he might have chosen a more obviously admirable era of British history to celebrate than the period between the deposition and murder of Richard II and the bloody end of Richard III. The reactionary xenophobe argument is also hard to apply to the British drama of the last 70 years. For Professor Harvey, the textual patriotism of British theatre has led to its problematic promotion of individual creativity, isolationism and anti-theatricality, betraying ideological commitments to the privileged individual over the less privileged group. This leads to what Simon Shepherd describes as British drama's focus on people, precluding a focus on ideas, arguments and politics. Professor Harvey re repeated the same point at a conference in 2012, at which she pitted conservative, classical, text-based theatre organisations against politically challenging and socially radical performance companies. Well, the idea that text-based theatre, written by individual authors for institutional theatre companies, can never be politically challenging, is hard to apply to the early work of the Royal Court's John Osborne, whose political manifesto was titled Damn You, England, nor to Arnold Wesker, whose trilogy was about his, commitment, his communist Jewish family, nor to John Arden, a Yorkshire socialist whose work was presented by the court, the National Theatre and the RSC before his emigration to Ireland. It's also hard to apply to Osborne and Wesker's successors, to the State of England playwrights of the 70s, the women playwrights of the 80s, the in-your-face brat pack of the 90s, the playwrights who took on the war on terror through fact-based drama in the noughts, and the remarkable cohort of young playwrights, male and female, black and white, who have returned to fiction and some to history in this decade. The truth is that for the last 50 years of British theatre, there has been a persistent challenge to traditional art form barriers and many attempts to achieve a synthesis between the performance and literary traditions, a synthesis in which I lived in my early years as a playwright. I hope this week will contribute to an ongoing conversation in the academy and the profession 
about how text-based theatre might inform and be informed by performance. This conversation already addresses the experience of those playwrights who are now finding ways of working with performance companies and the work of playwrights who challenge linear narrative and rounded, rounded characterization. But it should also pay attention to fresh generations of playwrights who still want to work with character and narrative, and perhaps to drop a nod to those old but still radical playwrights who do privilege the dramatic over the metatheatrical, who think that theatre should be about more than just itself, and who believe that the role of the playwright in Howard Brenton's ringing phrase is to bring the news in from the street. <laughs>